0: I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm happy to have with me Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield, and we are going to talk about Tina Turner. There was, I thought, a very good documentary about her on HBO that you can watch on HBO Max. Pretty, pretty good. She's also one of the people who maybe voted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. Uh, solo she's already in with uh, Ike Turner one of the reasons i wanted to do this show is to encourage anyone who is a voter to uh, vote for Tina Turner who needs to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame she'll certainly be on top of my ballot and she also had her second autobiography just a couple years ago that was very much worth reading even if you read the first one i tina which was of course done with Kurt Loader. But this one is really, really revealing, really good, and she's one of the greatest. She's simply the best, and I thought we should talk about her. Starting out, I think we all know a fair amount about Tina. But what were your takeaways from the documentary, Robin Brittany?
1: I cried through all of it. <laughs> it was my big takeaway. Yeah, I mean, I I just have been a huge fan of Tina for the longest time, and any sort of direct. I mean, so much of her story, I feel like we know, and I think kind of rehearing it is really sobering, especially kind of the early part of her career and even before her career with her family stuff, too. Um, It's just so powerful just to kind of see everything that she's done, especially the way that she looks at her solo career and how it really began and everything. I don't know. I just, I loved hearing her directly look back on it and kind of talk about how happy she's been in the years since and looking at her life now in Switzerland with her husband and just how she's been kind of enjoying it in a new phase of it. Just really beautiful to see.
2: How about you, Ram? There's no story anywhere like this in music. And for her to be still revealing things about the story and still reflecting on this story, you know, she could have said, okay, like, I don't need to keep walking over these incredibly sad stories. But um, something about the way she has kept telling the story and the way she has owned the story has really been such a hugely inspiring part of it. And there's no story like Dina
0: Turner and nobody tells the story like Dina Turner. It is one of those stories that bears telling over and over. It didn't matter one bit that, you know, there's there's already been an entire biopic and not just an obscure biopic, but a really big deal years ago. It didn't matter there's already been a Broadway show. And it didn't matter on any level. And especially as Brittany kind of hinted at the the emotional level, you just feel for her so intensely, both in the true tragic nature of a lot of her life. And it was wrenching to hear her say that it wasn't a good life. You know, I thought that was just, and that's, they hit you with that at the very beginning. It's very hard to hear. But when, you know, you realize, again, that it wasn't just Ike, it wasn't just Ike being abusive, you know, it started from being abandoned by her mother and father when she was about 13 years old, uh, and never feeling wanted by her mother. And then she got together with Ike in this way that was, there was not even an iota of romance about it. People think they got married as soon as it was sort of I can Tina Turner, but that wasn't the case at all. They didn't even get married until years later in Tijuana. She thinks it wasn't even a legal marriage. It's all, some of this is, is in her autobiography rather than the movie, but it, it's also sad. And yet her triumph, right? It's just, that's, that's what makes it a story that you want to hear over and over again is the degree of triumph is just, it's a, a showbiz story like no other.
1: Yeah. I think also to the point of her and Ike and that story and us hearing it again and again through the film, through this documentary, through her books. It's so important because I think for a lot of people, she is the most mainstream story of domestic violence. She is someone who kind of shows just how trapped you can be in a situation like that, especially if you're in this situation, not because of necessarily love, like she was in it for a lot of reasons that she felt like she needed to protect him and then ended up having to protect all you know her kids and his kids and kind of not knowing how to get out and not knowing how to do it even if you're as famous as they were and as big as she was not being able to feel like you can get out of a situation like that like that's why it's so important to hear a story like hers and so important to kind of have it in her words of describing just what it felt like to feel trapped in that situation even as this glamorous rock star on stage who seems to exude Freedom and independence, and still not really having that, and not even feeling kind of remotely of her own body and of her own sort of like agency in her life, which is what makes her so, so powerful and that triumph so much more powerful is to get over that at a time, especially when there, that language didn't exist and those examples didn't exist positively and in a way of like where you could do that, and the way that we still kind of struggle as a society and like in the way that we talk about it for her to even have the career that she had after that is so powerful and amazing to see that that even existed because it's just, there was no real precedent for that to exist in that way before her. Yeah,
0: and she was asked the kind of questions that over and over again, that people are only now starting to understand are, are so deeply inappropriate. You know, why didn't you leave earlier and all these things that are, <laughs> that are just based on a total lack of understanding of these kind of situations and then and then sort of constantly casually re-traumatized by interview questions and these things are always a, a reminder of how cognizant you have to be as an interviewer to not casually sort of trigger people
1: even after she talked about it to death there was like so much so many people like asking the same questions of her constantly of can you just talk about why you left or like why didn't you leave earlier she, like, wrote a full book about it, and she still was getting asked about it constantly.
0: In her book, she actually mildly calls out Oprah for being one of the worst yeah. offenders, but then then kind of giving her an out because Oprah was doing it for a good reason, which she was trying to help other people. At the same time, still apparently doing it to her again and again, so you can kind of weigh that either way.
2: It can't be stressed enough, just historically, that she was the first celebrity to talk about this. In the 80s, at a point where crazy seems right now, the term domestic violence did not exist. The term domestic abuse did not exist. That idiom didn't exist. To a large extent, published consciousness of that entire issue through the 80s, very directly attributable to Tina Turner, the first famous person to talk about it. And she talked about it. In the private dancer era, where she was fighting hard to establish her comeback as a viable pop artist and a viable pop entertainer, she had a lot to lose by publicizing it at that moment when she was trying for her comeback, and that she was true to that aspect of her story at a time when she had a lot to lose and was risking very much by talking about that aspect of it. It's something about her that I think people really underrate, that this isn't just her going public with this story. This is her going public with a story that nobody had gone public with before, on that kind of level of fame, certainly not in the music world, but just not in the showbiz world. And the extent to which people became aware of domestic violence as a major issue in this country in the 80s, Tina Turner is a huge, huge factor in that. And she was really making history by speaking about this at a time when that kind of thing just was not done. I think her courage is underrated, you know, although, you know, we all look to her courage and think of her, but just the downright heroism of that, put it in historical context, there's nothing like it at the time. She was absolute pioneer.
0: It did make me think a little bit, more than a little bit uncomfortably, about that weird Ike Turner renaissance that happened before his death. Uh, the fact that he played with the gorillas, and even the guys, I don't know whatever happened with it, but I think the guys in the Black Keys were going to do an album with him. There was that weird sort of all is forgiven fucking weird moment that never sat right with me in the first place. And frankly, I never noticed much of that. I never was a huge girls person. So I was only peripherally aware of all this, but looking back, it doesn't seem great. It's it, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 don't I didn't this,
1: even I noticed, know that happened. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't
2: notice any of this happened. I'm not. I'm not sure there was a Ike Turner Renaissance. Uh, unfortunately, Turner he, he did.
0: He, I, well, this is you know, I was vaguely reminded. I was like, didn't that happen? And I was reading up about it and listening back. He played with the Gorillas. There's this oh, picture wow. of There's this picture of Damon Albarn and the Gorillas celebrating Ike Turner's birthday with him with a big cake. Uh, there was. Th- thank God, the guys in the Keys thought better of it. I didn't know about this until yesterday. Wow. But apparently, the Keys briefly considered or started producing an album with him yeah unfortunately there was a brief sort of hipster renaissance with him about 10 years ago maybe
1: 15. Um, I mean as we've seen that still happens with a lot of people who are abusive who are you know have harassed sexually violated and been violent towards women so I I guess I'm not surprised that 10 years no, ago no, there was a, a lot yeah. of people who were like we should celebrate this rock icon even though he was a uh, actual monster to someone who has had more influence on music and who is more powerful and whatever but anyway yeah well i thought
0: i thought both her book and the documentary did a good job of putting into some psychopathological context what was going on in some of Ike's thinking if you could term it that which is that he had some kind of betrayal complex because the other thing historically that we really you need to know about Ike Turner is, is of course the song Rocket 88 and the fact that he did one of the first rock and roll songs.
3: You women have heard of Jalop, and you heard the noise they make but let me a my new Rocket
0: 88. But it wasn't credited to him. It was credited to Jackie Brennan and that always seemed like a curiosity to me. And the fact that that was sort of one of the inciting traumas of his life was actually kind of interesting so it made him insanely paranoid about credit and about that the, a collaborator would leave him, which led to some of his deranged behavior. But as Tina points out in her book, so she she tries to kind of, if she tries to just trace, you know, where was this pathology coming from? There's a bit of that. But she points out that it made no sense if it was an effort to keep her close, because all he had to do was not treat her like that. And she said she would have stuck around. So in addition to being monstrous, it was utterly even self-destructive. He was a monster. Uh, speaking of monsters, what a bizarre thing, and I think that you can really dwell on it for a minute, that some of her early salvation and liberation came from a collaboration with someone else's monster, you know, with Phil Spector, which I think only speaks, unfortunately, to the prevalence of the, of it's sort of like a hall of like one of those haunted houses where everywhere you turn, there's like a new monster. And the, there's such a prevalence of sort of male monsters in, in music and perhaps in just life that the guy who she saw as a savior <laughs> was later like a murderer and a, an abuser in his own right, Phil Spector. How do we wrap our heads around that?
1: Yeah. I mean, to Rob's point earlier, like it's just not having that language, not having that sort of way to contextualize these people, just kind of letting the men who are in power and in music and as again, still happens and still exists so much of like having these monsters in broad daylight who are able to sort of manipulate the people who are closest to them and then seem like saviors and seem like sort of the the perfect sort of musical savant or the person that can kind of help build this career up is still very prevalent and still exists in so many ways in the music industry but I mean, of course, in the 60s, it was just such a normalized part of it, because that language didn't exist. Ronnie Spector couldn't do that yet, <laughs> like couldn't really have that same narrative that Tina very bravely was able to do later, but not to say that Ronnie wasn't brave, but there was no language. There was no precedent to it. There was no, nothing to really use to kind of help you get out of it.
0: Right. And then, of course, in Tina's narrative, Phil wasn't the monster. He was kind of, yeah. he, he played this different role. Although in in her book, she did see signs, she said that he picked an apple out of an ashtray that was covered with ashes and ate it. So there were signs that that she (laughs) she got hints of some non-normality from Phil Spector. But that song, Rob, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that song, River Deep Mountain High.
3: Yeah,
2: to me, that's not a great Phil Spector record or a great song. I, it's always a little mystifying the way Europeans sort of, sort of hold it in such high esteem. But I think it's, it's a weird Phil Spector moment that didn't really work for her voice, I think.
0: I think there is something great about this song. I think it's a little bit overrated in the scheme of things. But there is something about it. She found something about it. She talks about it again and again. Because basically, Ike made her sing in this way that was a growl. Which is something that she obviously could do, and is a great part of her voice, but she could do a lot more, and was the sort of pseudo operatic nature of that I guess she found liberating and it is it is interesting, and she also pointed out that the reason that Phil wanted her to sing it is because none of the sort of girl group people around him those singers actually didn't have the range she had, so it's interesting, I think it's an interesting oddity of a record I agree. That it may not be like, there are people who, who will rhapsodize, as you know, there's people, who, and not just Phil and not just Tina, who rhapsodize about it and think it's one of the greatest records ever made. I'm somewhere between them and Rob on it, but it's definitely an interesting album.
2: The little kid lyric is so wrong for her, and also like I feel like she's so straitjacketed in that song because of his amazing arrangement, which would be like great for another singer, but it kind of pushes her voice into a small place. My favorite thing about that record is always the way Phil Spector described it, which to me describes a lot of his records, a lot of her records a lot better. But I love how he said that record sounds like God hit the world and the world hit back. That to me describes a lot of his records, a lot of her records, but it doesn't happen to describe River Deep Mountain High. I'm always a little, to me, that's just sort of a minor footnote in her her amazing career. Seeking the truth never gets old.
0: There's a lot of great, again, I think we can say there's there's a lot of great moments from her time with Ike musically. I love the song, uh, I think it's going to work out fine. It's utterly incredible. There's at least two good versions. They did a thing where there's a lot of re-recordings. Even on the River Deep Mountain High album, there's a second version of that song, which may or not be even better than the original early one, but that's an amazing song.
3: Yes, Tina. It's time to get next to me. honey
0: that was my plan from the very beginning uh what are some other highlights for for you two in the, the pre-sola era
1: I mean it's such a, a basic one but like I really love the there's this live version of proud Mary that I just think is one of the greatest captured live performances I mean just like any Tina Turner live album is going to just be mind blowing to listen to, and I tend to listen to a lot of her '80s solo live stadium performances a lot. There is just this incredible one with like her and the Ike. It's just like her kind of riffing everything about it. Just the way that she speaks to the crowd is so mesmerizing. Even just if you're listening to it, you can fully picture her in one of her shimmery dresses doing high kicks the entire time. Like it's just so visual even just as an auditory experience
2: love that their version of come together is one of the best beatles covers ever the way tina turner hears a lot of the the demands that the song is making and and rises to them that's definitely like a case where she takes a john lennon song and totally makes it her own i think that's one of her big vocal tour de forces from that era i just i i I love it
0: rob what else in the pre-solo years is worth seeking out because again i I do think there's without crediting ike there just happens to be some great music from that period
2: so many so many great songs i mean they were very prolific very prolific on stage they were very rightly acclaimed i idolize you is one of my favorites She was always great and always had that fantastic vocal presence on those earliest rock and roll songs at a time when rock and roll is still being basically like invented. And an underrated aspect of her career is that she was someone who began the 60s as a star and ended the 60s as a star and evolved with the music as it went along. Someone who was, you know, like doing those really kind of early proto rock and roll tunes, but managed to evolve to touring with the Stones and everything in in the late 60s.
0: Yeah, I wanted to talk actually at some length about Tina as rock and roll singer. One of the first things she says in one of her Rolling Stone cover stories is, I am a rock and roll singer. In her book, she says, I am rock and roll. She is a rock and roll singer. And I, I even question whether the Ike and Tina review, I would say it's it's like a rock R&B thing. I would say it's about as if the E Street Band is rock and roll, then the Ike and Tina Review was rock and roll too, and of course the lines between what R and B was and rock and roll was in the '60s were incredibly meaningless often, anyway. But I think that some of the mischaracterization of Tina, what she was reacting to, she is you know purely racial. Like it's like she was a black woman, so therefore she was a soul singer, and she's although she loved she loved a lot of, of soul singers, and those were often her favorite singers. She saw herself as a rock and roll singer in the world. Seem to maybe still has a little bit of trouble, which is ridiculous, especially because, as, as Rob said, she was singing rock and roll very close to the birth of rock and roll, you know, very, very close. So there, there shouldn't be any issue at all. But there is that, that constant thing, that bizarre when, of course, rock and roll started with black singers. But this continual refusal of some people to be able to characterize, I guess, specifically a black woman as a rock singer is really interesting and not great, I guess.
1: To not call Tina Turner the queen of rock and roll is blasphemy. It is purely blasphemy. Like, anyone who does not think of her as the queen of rock and roll is out of their mind because she perfected rock and roll performance. Obviously, it's like Little Richard is the blueprint for rock and roll performance, like what it is to be a kind of personality in it. Like, Tina Turner perfected it. Everything about her on stage in both vocal ability and the way that she moves her body and the way that she performs is everything that we think of what rock and roll is. Everything that we know of Mick Jagger, of Robert Plant, of any sort of like the big rock and roll vocalist, that is Tina Turner, full stop. I find it so wholly offensive when people are not like, Tina Turner is the queen of rock and roll, because she is, like she absolutely, like the biggest rock and roll people, rock and roll stars of all time, look to Tina Turner as the reason why they, perform on stage the way they do mick jagger keith richards david bowie everyone is like she is why i do what i do so it just it's like absolute insanity like i just anyone who doesn't believe that is just not listening to music they're not listening to rock music
2: speak the truth absolutely (laughs) and also so amazing how um she always and and a consistent thing like definitely from the 70s onwards got so much more of her due respect across the seas than she did in her home country Mm -hmm. But the fact that America was always, always the last place to get it with regard to Tina Turner, just a running theme through her career. And that when America completely forgot about her in the late 70s, early 80s, it was the British rock and roll fans, especially British rock and roll fans, who are also British rock and roll musicians. They were the ones who... Always, always totally got Tina Turner and totally admired Tina Turner and totally aspired to Tina Turner. And for me, there's something so beautiful about the fact that, you know, in the early 80s, when nobody wanted anything to do with her, she was considered washed up, kind of forgotten about, that it was the dudes in Heaven 17 who completely rescued her career and had her sing Ball of Confusion on one of their records. And that became like her first hit in forever. And, and it's really beautiful in her book, especially if you happen to be a 80s new wave dork like me, that Tina Turner has so much intense loyalty toward the British new wave twits who believed in her and, and thought she still had a future at a time when people thought she was
0: washed up. An amazing part in the book where she comes in to record with them and she's like, Where are all the musicians? Where are the <laughs> instruments? And she and she then they actually a, keep
1: that in the musical. That's in the Tina musical. Right? Wow, yes. yeah. That is in there. I <laughs> like love that. you just see all the sense, and she's like, where, where where are the musicians? Where is the, where are the instruments? <laughs> and, and, and,
2: and I love and in a very, very typical Tina Turner touch. I mean, her loyalty is one of the super underrated things about her. But by the early 90s, when she's one of the biggest stars in the world and the heaven seven teen guys are a bit behind the times, a bit low profile. She sings on one of their records then. She sings a great version of A Change Is Gonna Come in 1991 at a time where the tables have totally turned. Now she's doing them the favor, but she did not forget that they believed in her at a time when she needed that. That's something, you know, throughout her career
0: that she has always, always stuck by the people who believed in her. This thing of British rock legends seeing her as a direct peer was so key to her comeback. Mm-hmm. She talks about in the book that basically she was playing at the Ritz, this storied rock club in New York, and Rod Stewart came to see her, and that led to him bringing her up to sing a Hot Legs on SNL, and that led to basically almost a, a bidding war for her talents, and so that was, a, that was a very key moment. And then there's this moment where she, she's out partying with Keith Richards and Bowie, and then Mick Jagger at Live Aid later on, and she was already establishing her comeback, but that was an enormous moment.
2: Yes, well, one of the pivotal moments of her career, it's early 83, Bowie is being taken out to dinner by his record company because he's got a new record for them, Let's Dance. Everybody knows it's going to be a mega blockbuster, which it is. Everybody's whining and dining, the new megastar of the music business, and Bowie's like, okay, all right, we're going to the Ritz, like, you know, Tina Turner, and they're like, who Tina Turner and they're like, you know, she's on your label and her manager gets a request for 63 spots on the guest list because David Bowie insists on bringing her whole record company to see her and also that night Keith Richards is there, Ron Wood is there. She called that her Cinderella moment where she became a star and and she writes really beautifully about it in the book she was really sad the next day because she thought it was just that one night you know and and that's where the famous photo one of the all-time great photos in rock and roll history where she's at the hotel afterwards staying up all night with keith and bowie and you know they're finishing a bottle of jack daniels and they're standing around the piano ron Woods playing the piano they're singing songs and to her, she thought that was the peak and that was the end. She thought her Cinderella story was just one night. As we now know, she was never going to be unfamous Again.
1: I want like a one night in Miami type of play that is like a dramatization of totally. that night.
2: <laughs> totally. You know, and everybody, the record company is like, oh my God, she's amazing. We got to do something with her. And Private Dancer comes directly out of that. And mm-hmm. again, an amazing thing of her loyalty that, you know, as the 80s went on, she got more and more famous. David Bowie didn't have a hit like Let's Dance Again, but she was always still collaborating with Bowie. They always had that intense personal love, but also her intense loyalty that, you know, Mm -hmm. she never forgot that it was David Bowie who did her that that huge career-altering favor.
1: Yeah.
0: And I want to run back and talk in depth about Private Dancer and and her comeback, but just to finish with Bowie, she talks about in her book this extraordinary live video of the song Tonight with Bowie. And if you've never seen it, It's worth checking out on YouTube because you've never seen David Bowie so just purely joyful on stage and so in awe of another performer. He's just so grateful to be on stage with her. It's worth seeing it. and he's and it's just it's also just, you know, he's he's just as she describes this vision in this ridiculous white suit just coming down from the from the uh, the high level of the stage and then they're together. It's it's great. Was that shown a lot? Was that like an MTV Rob? Because I
2: must admit I've never seen it. No, that was part of a concert video, but it wasn't it wasn't broadcast on MTV. And it's crazy how beautiful it is, but also how happy they both are. And it shows the personal loyalty as well as the artistic mutual admiration. In the great 87 documentary, 20 Years of Rolling Stone, it was Rolling Stone's anniversary. And some of the most beautiful moments in that are when David Bowie and Tina Turner are talking about each other. And I love the way she calls him David, you know, in this really like affectionate way. It's almost like she's like, woo I get to call him David and you don't. Nobody calls him David. Everybody calls him Bowie. But um, that sort of, you know, genuine love between them that comes across in so many ways, but in that 1985 stage performance where he is so happy and she is so happy and they love singing the song together even though it's an old Iggy and Bowie collaboration song about dying of a drug overdose. And yet they're singing it like it's this beautiful
0: love song and when they sing it, it is. Just to contextualize it a a little bit, you know, she faced ageism and the inevitable racism as she tried to make this comeback On the other hand, in the 80s, there was this weird pocket of adult contemporary and allowing people in their 40s to have hits. There was this weird door open to it in a way that maybe wasn't the case, certainly later on, certainly not now. I'm sure either of you could talk about it. But but Rob, what was up with that, with, with people in their 40s kind of occasionally, no one did it on the scale she did. But there was that a little bit of the window open at that time in this weird way.
2: I would argue a lot of that comes from her. It was after her that people like Patty LaBelle and, you know, people who hadn't had hits in a while. The thing is if you were, you know, like a, a 40-ish, 40-something rock star like Mick Jagger or Phil Collins, you could keep going on or David Bowie. But we can't overstress the weirdness that, you know, Tina Turner became a solo star. She wasn't a solo star before that. She was the long-forgotten singer of Ike and Tina Turner. And that she became a solo star. When she was 44 years old, and that just doesn't happen. You know who's 44 right now? Chris Martin of Coldplay, Joey Fatone of NSYNC, Ja Rule, like, those people are forty-four right now. They are the age that Tina Turner is when she became a <laughs> star. Those are when
0: three people at very job different. Rules. <laughs> different. Those are people <laughs> at very different points in their careers. But but
1: point taken. Yeah, yeah. I just love that trio. Where's <laughs> their where's yeah. their collab? Like,
0: Chris, Chris Martin is listening, be like, Joey Fatone, I mean, truly. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah. Point taken. Like,
2: John yeah. Mayer is forty-four. Okay. Wow. Like, they're people that we think about as having been around forever you know but the producer rodney jerkins is a great example who produced the boy is mine the number one hit of 1998. these are all people who have been around forever they're the age that tina turner is when her first solo hit what's love got to do with it came out as far as i know there's no precedent for a 44 year old having a debut hit especially one that sensational and you know tina Turner invented this whole middle-aged platinum vogue of, of the 80s but I think she perfected it. I don't think you can yeah. pick a hit like What's Love Got To Do With It, making somebody a solo superstar when they're 44.
1: Also looking at where she had been at for a decade prior, in terms of she literally had no money when she left Ike. She had nothing. She had to fight legally to keep the name Tina Turner. Just like how little she was left with, she was performing in Vegas. There was not the same crowds, the same like fervor. It took a lot of people who were much more famous and who had big hits kind of to champion her, to get even her label to care. Someone like Ja Rule and Joy Fatone, like, they're kind of, you know, they're fine. Like, they are making enough money. If they wanted to just release a Vanity song right now, it would do, like, moderately well. It would get a couple million views on YouTube. It would be fine. But Tina literally was, like, taking care of all these kids. She had no money and was, like, struggling to support herself in general. She was coming from nothing once more in her life to kind of pick herself up and do that and that's kind of similar to also Cher who's another example of someone who had this sort of solo renaissance in the 80s much older age than a lot of we allow pop stars to be when they can have a renaissance like that and similarly was coming out of a divorce that left her broke played in Vegas kind of moderately successful and then able to make that huge comeback is so it's so incredible to like see what where it's kind of like literally coming from nothing once again to do that
0: a couple things about that you're it, it, absolutely and it makes it's part of what makes her comeback almost the archetypal comeback of all time in, in music because she literally came from nothing she gave up everything part of it was that she with incredible bravery chose to end the sort of divorce proceedings with Ike with nothing, because it, she could have gotten more, but that would have meant being in the same room with him mm-hmm. and stuff, dragging it out. And so just to, like, get away from this guy, she said, I want nothing. She took two cars and her name and nothing else. Uh, one of the cars given to her by Sammy Davis Jr., by the way, just a side note. But, and and we, I, I did want to mention quickly that one of the things that's left out in the movie is so interesting to learn that she was deeply inspired by her moment appearing in the movie of Tommy as the acid Mm -hmm. queen, that that was a big moment that gave her strength to leave Ike, and I just thought that was really interesting because I never really heard her talk about that. But, so again, archetypal comeback story, and I wanted to pick up what you said about Cher, because it turns out she appeared on whatever Cher's yeah. variety show was at the time and they bonded with her.
1: Yeah, they like yeah. basically at the time when they were both just kind of coming out of these divorces, trying to be seen as artists on their own outside of their husbands who were seen as like the brilliant masterminds of what they were doing. And, you know, two husbands that completely screwed them over in their lives. They performed together. They did like Tina did a bunch of performances on the share show, which always kind of like go viral every few months. And I watch every few days, but they are just so incredible. I mean, just kind of like seeing two of the best stage performers Two people who are just so great at being mega pop stars on stage. It's just so fun to watch them perform together because they just like had really nothing to lose. Like they just were kind of enjoying themselves, doing a bunch of covers, dancing together, doing these weird skits. But that was kind of a big part of Tina's sort of 70s presence was appearing on the Share show.
0: It's very moving to think about Cher helping lift her up and the the solidarity they had together. And it's also really interesting and depressing to know that they both were sort of left in different ways with the bills from the breakups as far as canceled concerts, because they both left under circumstances such that they were actually... Concerts book for Sonny and Cher, a concerts book for Argentina and of course, both dudes somehow arranged it so it was the woman's problem. And that was really dark too. I think Cher had a couple million dollars in debt, Tina was being sued, so th- there's so much there. So, Private Dancer, again, First of all, I had never heard that earlier version from some horrendous pop group of What's Love Got To Do With It. I cannot believe something so horrible exists. I need to hear the whole thing. That was so amazing to show what a great, how much a great singer can be the difference between an absolute dog shit song and one of the greatest songs of all time. I just, wow.
2: Yeah, it's it's amazing. And the video
0: with the guy's muscles, that was incredible, sorry, go ahead.
2: Unbelievable, right? Yeah. (laughs) Unbelievable. And also, imagine her hearing that and saying, Yep, I could do something with that. And that's part of the legend. You know, with Private Dancer, a lot of those songs would be terrible if someone else was singing them. You know, like Private Dancer, the song itself, the Mark Knopfler song, she sings it. It's like this heartbreaking testimony. As she said at the time, this is my story. Try to imagine anybody else singing that song. It's just, it's, you know, it doesn't happen. Like she found something in all these songs. The legendary Rolling Stone review of Private Dancer, which put that album on the map, in terms of a Rolling Stone review, like completely altering a career, that's one of the the top ones, because that was before the album broke. And the kicker to the review by one of the magazine's top critics at the time, Debbie Miller, she said, you know, last year I saw Tina Turner on TV singing that terrible, terrible 70s song, Seasons in the Sun, but she still found something in that song that could break your heart. And she's like, now imagine her doing that to good songs. And that completely sums up the record. I mean, that's the kind of review that made people go like, I got to hear this. And that's exactly what she's doing. What's Love Got To Do With It is a great song, but you'd never know it from hearing that terrible early version. And it just cracks me up that Tina was like, yep, I can do something with this.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: To be fair, I guess at first she was like, I can't do something with this. But she nonetheless, like, like <laughs> she, did it. she did not she want did to it. do something with yeah.
1: any of that. But yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she says in the book that there's a Mark Knopfler version of Private Dancer. I don't know if the world has ever heard it. And she was basically making, she was like, it, it's unbelievably laughable to hear him sing it. it, it basically, even she says, so I cannot, <laughs> it's... And it's, and it's so such weird. an
2: atypical Mark Knopfler song. I mean, not knocking Mark Knopfler, but how many songs did he write where there's any sort of empathy toward a woman or any sort of recognition of a female in the song as a human being? It's, it, it's not his strong point as a songwriter. The fact that he wrote Private Dancer is one of the many things about that song that is just mind-blowing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> It's very strange.
2: <laughs> it's so strange. And it's such a bleak song. You know, she's really laying a lot of her story out there in a way that is very... It's kind of amazing, it became such a huge hit.
3: Well, the men come in these places
0: It was a hit in the context of, you know, it was a rock and roll hit. It was a lot of things. I was kind of getting at this earlier. It was, to me, in the best way, the quintessential sort of 80s adult contemporary. It hit young pop listeners. It hit everyone. But it also hit older boomers who were themselves, you know, late 30s, 40s. It was, for me, like, I definitely knew it as, it was one of the rare records, like, definitely my parents own that. And there's not a lot of albums I can say that of, (laughs) of, believe me. So it's very interesting to me. It, It hit, like, the... grown-ups at the time in a way that's interesting and there there isn't as much of that today. The only, I can only think of like Adele and a few other things that really are sort of that adult contemporary type of thing, right? That was a niche at that time.
2: Yeah. But it really rocked. These were like absolute mainstream rock anthems. The song like Better Be Good To Me, that's a very 1984 AOR mainstream rock anthem that she's doing something with that song that no other singer could do.
0: has to be noted she said to her manager to be that i want to play stadiums like the stones that was at a point where she, you know there was no comeback none of it existed and she talks about buddhism being something a way to manifest something in the world but i guess it worked because it, it's absolutely stunning she really did it and it, against every imaginable odds and more, more than once ever since then the huge tours uh, up until she decided to stop it's amazing
1: yeah. it would have defied the law of physics and just everything to not have Tina Turner eventually perform in stadiums. Like it would have been such a great loss to music, to the world. I mean, if you look at every single kind of great performer now, the most obvious example being someone like Beyonce, who very directly points to solo Tina Turner performances as the blueprint for what she does on stage, which as we know, have created these incredible cultural moments over the last two decades. Tina Turner is how we got from point A to point B. Like a lot of people kind of point to like Diana Ross in it, but it's Tina Turner that leads to someone like Beyonce. It's Tina Turner that leads to those great performances. So, I mean, there's just like so much that she created for lovers of live music of great stadium shows that I don't think would have been the same if she had not been able to have the career that she had beginning in the eighties.
0: Yeah. And I was looking for an excuse to get to this. So let's, Play what Beyonce had to say about Tina as she was about to perform Proud Mary for her at the Kennedy Center Honors really cool
1: ladies and gentlemen Beyonce
3: you know every now and then when I think of inspiration I think of the two Tinas in my life that's my mother Tina. And of course, the amazing Tina Turner. I'll never forget the first time I saw you perform. I never in my life saw a woman so powerful, so fearless, so fabulous in those legs. I want everyone to stand up. We're celebrating Tina Turner tonight. We're going to take the beginning of this song and do it easy. But then we're going to do it rough, like you. Y'all ready? Listen to the song.
0: As always, we had Beyonce wrap the show for us. <laughs> Thank you again, Beyonce. Thank you to Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield. That is our show for today. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast sure you know that. Download us as a podcast, subscribe to us as a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Do leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. As always, thanks for listening, keep staying safe, and we'll see you next week.